Hello, my name is Tricia. I am a compulsive overeater. Today is uh, Tuesday, December 20th, um, and we are uh, having a speaker today at our meeting. Our speaker is Perry, and I look forward to hearing Perry, who comes all the way from London, England. The floor is now yours, Perry. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever everyone is. Um, lovely to be here. My name is Perry. I'm anorexic, bulimic, compulsive overeater. Thank you, Trisha. And thank you to Rita for asking me to come along this afternoon and share. Can I just check, Trisha? Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, it can be all good. Fantastic. Um, yes, Rita actually asked me to come and share a little bit on the recovery from relapse process um i did a chair a little while ago and and talked about a period of my life where i, I was in and out of relapse so I'll, I'll come on to that in a second let me let me just start with i'm only here today because of oa and um that that really is the case um and so let me just start from the beginning a little bit and i won't do a, a whole history but let me just start i grew up in somerset in england and i was quite an active kid um and um i suppose through teenage years i um, was played a lot of sport and thought at some point that my career might go in that sports direction and started down a, a, a professional career and um, I don't really have a very early food history around this stuff. I was, I was an active kid. I didn't really think too much about it. My weight didn't change too much till my late teens. And then I started just gradually putting on a little bit of weight. And then through university, something changed. And, and I suppose at this point, I just want to acknowledge that this is my own personal experience with it. It's my own lived history. Our, our patterns sometimes are all very different in, in the fellowship, um, but, the, but the one thing that binds us all is the abstinence, is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviours. And during university, what began to happen was, on a very physical level, I began to overeat, and then I began to binge. And it started with... Uh, something relatively small it started um, with an extra bit of this or an extra bag of that um, and yet very quickly before I knew it I start. I was in a kind of binge restriction pattern um, and um, the progression of that happened very quickly um, and within a couple of years I was in something that mimicked this pattern then for a number of years which was I at one point would take what I now know as a first compulsive bite and then I couldn't predict what would happen after that and, and it, when I say couldn't predict what would happen after that what would happen after that is I would carry on eating carry on eating carry on eating until at a certain point I must have I don't know I must have enough willpower whatever to, to kind of stop and then it would cycle back into a real restriction phase and I would restrict. Um, and it was so it was this kind of sort of constant day one cycle. And this what felt like a constant battle with food. 
Um, was it food per se? I had certain binge foods that I knew that I would I would aim for when I'd taken that first compulsive bite. And the kind of perfectionism having come out of a relapse was I wouldn't eat those foods and I would restrict and restrict and restrict and at a certain point it would break again. Um, one of the phrases that I loved, so let me give you just a bit of timeline. I'm, I'm sitting here at 52. I walked into my first meeting in 1993. So it happened very quickly that I, I get to a point that I, I start to seek another solution. Very quickly, I stepped back in the early 90s, very quickly I began to feel um, a sense of powerlessness around this stuff. Um, and I also, looking back from X amount of time in program, see somebody who didn't tell anybody. Uh, it feels very odd now, sitting in program 30 years down the line, that I didn't tell anybody what was going on. I hid it. Um, that sense of shame that I had that this was going on, the sense of shame that um, this was food, the sense of shame that it wasn't drugs, alcohol, whatever. This, this was food for me. Um, and they say shame lives in three, needs three things, um, silence, secrecy, and judgment. And there was silence. I wasn't telling anybody. Um, there was secrecy. I was hiding it. Um, I would appear outwardly okay, tell everyone the world's, everything's okay, um, and internally be feeling a mess and out of control. And judgment be that um, I hated myself for doing it and was completely confused as to what was going on as well. Um, there is um, a line in the big book about um, food, that you know, alcohol being a symptom, but food is the symptom. And actually what was also going on was, was a load of other life stuff. And what I remember thinking was that whole sense of if I could sort my life out, my food would be okay. And that kind of sense of, you know, if I sorted my, my career at the time out, if I, if I sorted my relationship stuff out, then actually that would take care of the food element to it. Um, and... I remember, so I mean, it's, I mean, it feels a bit bitty in my head, and it does feel a bit bitty because it was in, it was an insane period of my life. Um, I before I reached out to somebody, I actually did a stint in, in a stint in terms of a, a job for about three or four months in a twelve-step alcohol and rehab centre as admin support. And I remember looking at the program going in denial of what was going on about my food and they didn't do a food program going, oh, I'd love that program. I, you know, I felt out of control internally. I would absolutely love that program. Um, and I suppose by 90, in 1992, I'd finished university and I was struggling with this pattern. I was struggling with my food, struggling with my life. And I mentioned it to a family member that I was struggling. It was the first time I told anybody that I was struggling with my food. And they said, I, I wonder if there is a food thing similar to AA. And they, they knew about the AA program. And it, it planted the seed. Um, 
I, I then did a, effectively a geographical, which is I was struggling in England. Do you know what? I'm going to go and live in Sydney, in Australia. I'm going to live on a beach and you know, I'm going to have a whale of a time. Um, it's going to be amazing. I'm going to have this kind of life, get my life back together, blah, blah, blah. And within two weeks, I was back in that um, cycle again and I was binging and, and I was struggling. And I got to my first meeting. Um, I got to a point at that point of saying, to a degree, step one, I'm powerless over this and I, I need some help. I need some help. Um, I got to my first meeting um, and didn't connect at all. There were only two people in that meeting in Sydney at the time, and they were both in relapse. And the gift, what they said to me, and the, the only thing I remember about that meeting was they said, look, go to another meeting. Keep coming back, but go to another meeting. And um, it took me four or five months to get back to another meeting. But I walked into a St. Leonard's meeting on a Monday night at 7.30. It was called... Um, and, uh, listen and learn. It was a specifically newcomers meeting. And I sat there and for the first time um, that I had that sense of coming home. And what I mean by that for me was I had visual identification around young guys being in recovery in this. And I heard young men in recovery. And right at that meeting, that was helpful for me. I heard people in recovery. Again, that was helpful for me. And I heard a solution. And that was important. Um, but actually, what I did, what I always remember from that meeting was what I heard people say, not how people looked. And what people were talking about was what, what was going on for them, which was exactly what was going on in my head. And I thought most of that stuff, I was the only person who was thinking that way. Actually, what I began to hear was other people thinking and then feeling and acting exactly like I did. And I thought, actually, you know what? I do belong here. That said, what I then go into is this kind of what ends up being three or four years of a kind of relapse process for me. So I come back, I, I start the steps brilliantly. I always remember writing my step one on a beach in Australia. Um, which was a real gift, actually start getting some abstinence. The first, and I, and I know this isn't the same experience for everybody, the first card that was in front of me on the floor was let go and let God. And that sense of me battling food was a real sense of I, I don't potentially have to battle this. I was still unsure as to how the program would work I, I i didn't i failed to mention i did a sports science degree um i could write myself a fitness exercise plan i could i could look at nutrition from a kind of exercise perspective none of that knowledge served any good to me um and so i was un, i half expected to get a plan in terms of eat this do this you know exactly and all that sort of stuff and there was this phrase that said let go and let god um, and i remembered a little bit of a honeymoon period in those first number of months of feeling like okay i i don't have to do this on my own and i can connect with something bigger than me so th this for me this three or four year period i come back to england and i have this process where 
I get a little bit of abstinence and then I relapse again. I get a little bit of abstinence and I relapse again. And this goes on for three or four years. And I remember, I remember being confused by this and everything else that comes with the relapse process. Um, shame, feeling like I'm a failure, but I'm not good enough again, not getting it. Confused around step three, my will, God's will, what's God's will? What's that meant to feel like? Is this, what is God's will? And I suppose in hindsight, looking at this period for me, there were a number of things in this. There was first a, a very action-orientated thing. So as I've now come to feel, the promises of the program happen at the end of step nine. And it says in the steps that a spiritual awakening happens at the end of 12. And I was doing what was described to me at the time as the OA waltz, which was one, two, three, relapse, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I never progressed past step three. So there's an element in this relapse process of not working the steps and, and looking at inventory and, and um, looking at character defects and looking at and the amends process, blah, blah, blah. There was also a sense of, they call it an arrogance of growth, I think. And for me, that was I get a bit of absence and then go, Do you know what, I'm done, don't need you, and off I go try and work it on my own again um so that definitely played out i'd get to a few meetings find a bit of absence and off i go again relapse back in again need some help come back in there was also part of this so in my head there was always this sense of i'm not doing enough uh, and there was definitely a part of that i wasn't working the program to how i feel you know sit in the middle of the bed work the program um but there was also an element that began to come in about being utterly fearful and scared of where abstinence and recovery was taking me. And what I knew for me personally, as I began to feel, was it felt a comfort space, if people can identify with that. It was somewhere I, uh, I, did, I knew that abstinence was going to bring me closer to stuff that I needed to look at. And I needed to look at cricket my sports career I needed to look at the relationship stuff I needed to make amends for the elements that had gone on and that sometimes felt too big and it was just easy to put something in my mouth and relapse and I'd be back in looking at you know um, back in the same space that I felt familiar with rather than comfort it's probably better way to put it better way to put it um and the the other thing I wanted to mention in this kind of uh, process of recovery from relapse, because I remember this starting to change for me, and this felt really important at the time, which was I'd begun to kind of get this idea that this was a disease and that I was powerless over this. But the minute I relapsed, what I would do to myself is, you're a failure. You've done it again. It's you. You've messed up. Um, and that perfectionistic head and self-critical head and would just literally come in from the moment it happened and, and I'd struggle with that. And I remember thinking, why, what would, what would, how would it feel if I actually could muster up enough compassion, self-compassion and self-love for the person going through this that was the most 
hurtful thing that could happen to me? Um, and how would that help the minute I had relapsed if actually what I was doing was trying to gift myself as much love and compassion as I could? So there was that sort of sense. And I began to get an inkling that one of my problems and one of my challenges was that that was all that I was telling myself, you know, which was all that you're not good enough. That's not enough. That's not enough. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. Um, how it began to change for me. Um, and again, I probably didn't mention it at the top. If I did, apologise, which is I'm only here because um, of so many people, of so many people. And I had an amazing gift at the end of a massive relapse in 1996. I ended up in a treatment centre. And it's not the treatment centre per se. What it is, is the fact that I got to a place where I'd actually never got before. And that point was I had nothing left to give it. It was a gift of desperation. It was completely and utterly defeated. It was the knowledge. And I say this, and I, and I know people have some feelings around this. I knew that I didn't have another relapse in me. And I knew that because I stood on a bridge and wanted to end it. And I knew that if I relapsed, I, I, I couldn't predict what would happen. I, and I knew that at a level that I'd not known before. And so what had happened, I believe for me, is I was teachable and I was willing. And at that point, I was at a place where I'd not been before, which was I was willing to go to any lengths, and I wasn't before. Um, and I went into treatment, and what the gift was, was I could do one to five. And for the first time, I sat and did a step four, and I did a step five with somebody. And this was the first time I began to get a sense of holding myself without it being... I always thought I would like myself if I was perfect. That seemed to be what was going on, that whole sense of um, can I fix the external to fix the internal? And actually what I began to get a sense of in that first four and five was that I was going to love myself for my with my imperfections and for being peri-imperfect, not peri-perfect. Um, and I began to get a sense out of that. And I began to get a sense that there was going to be some sort of freedom coming in that sense of not me not having to achieve something that was always going on. There was always this sense in childhood that life was, was over there and I would be happy when I got to that point. And life was always in the future. Uh, and what I loved about the program was it brought me back to the day. Um, can I live one day at a time? Now, for me to be able to live one day at a time meant working the steps. And I, what I love about the program is there's a lot, there's a fantastic order with them that I just think is God given. It's it's amazing. It's by one, I was really ready at that point then to admit that I was utterly powerless over food, um, and I didn't have a question by that point at it began then to look at well where's my where's this power what is this power and what does that mean for me um and my spiritual recovery has been a real journey actually a real journey and a gift of program i think the i think i thought there might be a solution in a diet plan or an exercise program 
the solution is a spiritual solution for me. And that journey of beginning to look for a higher power and start to connect with it um, has been a real journey. I got, I don't, didn't have, I grew up in, effectively with a, an Irish Catholic mother. I grew up in the Catholic church. And again, I, my concept of God or higher power at the time was somebody um, I mean, it was ultimately my parents. It was perfectionistic. It wasn't, you know, stuff wasn't good enough. Um, I'd go along each week and tell it the things that I hadn't done very well each week. And I sat in a retreat very early on in recovery and was invited to write a concept of a higher power that worked for me, um, that I could start to relate to. Um, and I did that process and, and I got to somewhere that um, I was, I was able to start to develop a personal relationship with this concept. And jokingly, I, I began to refer to it as mate. Um, and all that did was allow me to kind of start to begin to talk to it rather than keep it in a specific time and place for me. I wanted it to be part of my day. I wanted that to be a natural conversation for me. And that was the start of three. Um, that whole idea of handing my will and my life over to a, a phrase that is amazing, the care of God, um, took a little while to kind of really seep in. But that phrase today I love, which is that God cares for me and how my life looks and, and what I would like to do. But there's also a sense of just, as the big book talks about, coming out of the driving seat for this. Um, there's a lovely phrase that I began to use at the start of recovery, which was stop painting the picture of how your life should be. And I grew up with how this picture was going to be. It was going to be this, it was going to be that, it was going to be that. And, that, and it was the program, um, early recovery for me was about, you know what, that's none of my business, actually. I, there are some things I need to do today, and actually I can let go of that. And if that's God's will, and that's where it's meant to go, that's where it will go. Um, and that felt incredibly freeing as well. So, I mean, just going reading through my, my steps, this, um, yeah, four and five, love five, love the fact that, um, again, it was easier for me to talk to my mate, my higher power, than it was to actually talk to my sponsor about some of this stuff. And that felt um, a real healing process for me, being able to sit in front of somebody and take, take the mask off, take Perry Perfect mask off and say, this is actually who I am. And this is actually what has been going on. Um, and that was a great process. Six and seven, yeah, um, the real challenge, I think, to change in six and seven. Um, coming out of uh, the inventory process, uh, looking at both for me, and I always do this with, with sponsees as well, and it was really important for me. The inventory process was as much about looking at what I did well as it was about my shortcomings and my defects. And actually, even in step 10 inventories on a daily basis at the minute, I have to work harder at looking at what I do well than I do at, at what I don't do well uh, and to hold that in balance for me. Um, and then the idea that, um, that I'm asking God to help me remove my defects of character and also that the sense that a lot of those defects of characters were real survival mechanisms for me as a kid um, that I kind of outgrown as I got into recovery that, you know, it, it, the sense of hiding me, they, they allowed me to hide 
the kind of the dishonesty about how I felt and sharing that with anybody was I'm basically hiding from you guys. I'm not actually telling you what is really going on. Um, and, and somehow I think that's being safe to me because it obviously felt unsafe for me to do that as a kid. Um, so eight and nine making ends. Um, I think people talk about clearing, clearing the wreckage of the past. Um, and, and again, what I found with that as I went through that process was it began to allow me to live in the day because otherwise there was all this stuff that needed clearing up. There were amends process to go through. There were living amends to make. There was, um, I worked in a yogurt store. I mean, how mad was this? I worked in a yogurt store in Australia um, as a compulsive overeater. And when I relapsed, I, I basically ate half her store. Um, so there was an amends process to go through with that individual and that business in terms of financial remuneration as well. Um, but what it did was it talked about this process of coming in hopeless and moving to a space of hope. And actually what began to come for me was that clearing up the wreckage of the past helped me kind of sit in that today space, but also be incredibly hopeful of where the future was going to go and a sense of freedom. Um, and, and then the maintenance step, keeping on top of, of program, keeping on living the 12 steps. Um, I listened to a chair this morning, actually, from one of these earlier um, sessions a few weeks ago, and somebody was talking about love and service. And um, what began to come up for me at that point was... That's 25, five left. Thank you very much, acknowledged. Um, the, the freedom that I was beginning to get was partly because of all the action that I was taking, but also that um, there began to be a sense of, and I do feel this with my program today, that how can I be of service? That, that, that there was part of this process, which was I got a gift of abstinence. I got a gift by coming into program. I got a gift of getting into a treatment center. I got a gift with sponsors. I get a gift when people ask me to be a, a sponsor as well. You know, I'm, I'm here by the grace of God and the fellowship and the 12 step program. And as I moved into um, 12, there was a real chance to how can I play my part with this? That um, I sometimes sit and on, on my computer here, there is um, the OA promise about putting my hand in yours. I mean, so many people have offered me support through the through the years. And how can I play my part in, uh, in this for us all? Um, so, I mean, I kind of have whizzed over that, I suppose, a little bit in terms of the steps. But I also just want to acknowledge it's not it's not perfect. <laughs> it's not a perfect recovery process. It's it's progress, not perfection. There are times when it, it you know it's it, there's not a perfect um, program that I work, but I have a program, and as long as I'm open, honest, and willing, think stands me in the best stead um so i'm sort of babbling at the at the end of this to kind of just bring it to a close but i suppose just wrapping it up um how do i feel about the 12 steps it's it saved my life coming into program saved my life it was more than my wildest dreams my the, the bridge to kind of normal living it talks about i've been able to do 
stuff in my professional life that I never envisaged I would on the back of a foundation of putting recovery first. And that only came about because I was utterly defeated. Um, and that was a gift um, that I got to the point of desperation and was teachable. And, and it still sometimes I just wonder what would have happened pre-1960 um, or 1939, what would have happened. Um, and I'm glad I came in when I came in. Um, and I'm glad that there are people around me working a program that I can call on a daily level because um, the, the one thing that I did learn ever since that, the guy that came in at 23 or whatever it was, that didn't talk, that didn't share, that lied about what was going on, that actually with so much support out there, it just needs me to take the mask off and say, do you know what, I'm struggling. I'm not perfect. I've messed up. I'm not doing this great, you know, and just start to talk to people about this. Um, and also really just that developing of a, a, a relationship with a higher power that, that, um, that concept and that power that I can tap into on a daily level. And I'll just note this. Sometimes I, I gloss around all that, but I can still pour a cereal bowl in the morning and just go, God, help me pour my cereal bowl because I either want to chuck loads in or not chuck much in. And I ask God for moderation. Um, yeah, so I'm glad I'm here today. Thank you again for asking me. I'll wrap it up there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Perry. Um, I'm glad you're here today. Thank you for sharing such a, a, a your beautiful qualification. I'm going to go ahead and do uh, a quick reading, and then we'll open it up for sharing. Um, this is from um, the OA book called Abstinence. Um, if I'm in relapse, I don't talk about it. I compound the problem by beating myself up. I refuse to take remedial action. I refuse to learn from it, and I continue to sabotage myself by not reaching out. I've given up. I cooperate with the craziness. Relapse starts long before I take that first compulsive bite. It begins with the sinking thinking of cockiness or low self-esteem, and it ends with increasing isolation 